This is Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 2, recorded on January 11th, 2014. Half man, half fish wearing sunglasses. On today's show, we'll talk about Bitcoin ATMs, Zynga, all kinds of fish heads. We'll also be covering news about regulation in India, Jihashadayo and the centralization of mining, Overstock.com's new Bitcoin acceptance, and the new insured Bitcoin storage service by Elliptic Vault. If you want to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping addresses. Bitcoin, the show that covers the latest news and developments in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. My name is Sebastien Couture. I'm a user experience designer and a Bitcoin enthusiast living in Lille, France. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. I'm a Bitcoin entrepreneur in Berlin. So Sebastian, what's new with you? Uh, well, listen, not too much. Uh, just finished my first week back to work after Christmas holidays. That was... Challenging in itself, I gotta say. Um, I'm uh, I'm actually uh, working on a Bitcoin meetup here in Lille, and uh, that's been that project's been moving forward. Uh, well, not I wouldn't say uh, quickly, but it's moving forward. Uh, I actually found a, a venue. Um, I found a bar in mid here that accepts Bitcoin, so I was naturally inclined to go see them and see what they were all about. And it turns out it's kind of a geek bar that I had never, I had never seen before. I had never been in before. So I went and met with them, and they're really excited about uh, hosting the event. So I think we're going to be doing it in early February. Uh, for now, it seems like we're going to be doing it on the sixth of February. And uh, for now, I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who would want to speak at the event. Um, That's cool. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I'm also. I also just got back to Berlin now, and uh, you know, as you know, I've, I've been doing a Bitcoin meetup here for a few months now, and we having we're having our next meetup on Tuesday, and we just moved into a bigger a bigger location because we were kind of overflowing last year. And I'm really excited. We're gonna have. I'm. I'm gonna be talking about the predictions, which you know we did a podcast about. So I'll basically kind of tear this down and and do uh, talk about our predictions for 2014. And then we have a talk about Mastercoin and uh, no colored coins. And uh, we have one about the some guy that was working on Drupal integration. So they're always lots of fun. Cool. That's a good idea, actually. The I, I was thinking of doing a, a talk about some of the protocol layers of Bitcoin, but I, I don't think I'll have enough time to do all the research and be sufficiently informed about it to do a talk. So I'm, I might just do the predictions. <laughs> Maybe an easier way, an easier route for the first for my first talk about Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's great. Which. Um, how many meetups have you had so far? I think this is going to be your fourth. Great. And how many people do you track now? So we've been, from the very first meetup, I think we were about 30 people. And 
we have, I think, about 30 people for RSVP'd for Tuesday. So I, I presume it's going to be, you know, between 30 and 40 people. Uh, yeah. But uh, we also moved to a new place because we would like to grow the meetup this year. And, you know, I think it will. The meetup group has been growing rapidly, you know, like almost every day someone new joins the meetup group. So I think by the by the summer, I expect the meetup group to be at, you know, 60 at 60 people attending regularly or something like that. Wow. That's great. Well, we've got lots to talk about today. Uh, lots of news in Bitcoin this week. Uh, so let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So we said we're going to start with Bitcoin ATMs now. Yeah, this is a big, this is a big one. Yeah, so I, I have a lot to say about Bitcoin ATMs because I've actually spent a lot of my time in the last few months looking into Bitcoin ATMs and I was working on bringing Bitcoin ATMs to Germany and I've kind of decided now that I won't do this because it's uh, because of regulations, basically. It's, it's uh, not a simple project to do and it got a lot more, a lot more overhead than I wanted. Um, I mean, we also discussed Bitcoin ATMs briefly in our predictions episode. Um, but maybe let's take a step back and talk a bit about how Bitcoin ATMs work. So people have a, have a, a background picture because I think the word ATM is actually slightly misleading. Yeah, I think you're right. So this, this story is specifically um, the story of how the second, the world's second Bitcoin ATM is opening in Hong Kong? Well, yeah, well, second, that is kind of a, depending on the point of view, I don't think that you can really say that. Right. So, so let's just, let, let me briefly describe how Bitcoin ATMs work and then we can, then we can move on to the, the kind of recent developments. Okay. So there are, there's basically two companies that are leading in Bitcoin ATMs right now. One is Robocoin. They're based in Las Vegas. And the other is called Lamasu. They're based in New Hampshire. And Robocoin, they're well known for setting up the very first operating Bitcoin ATM in, in Vancouver in uh, last October. And it was a huge success. I mean, I think it was all over the news and it's been, it's been really great for Bitcoin, all the publicity it got. It also been a big success financially. I think they had a million, more than a million dollars in transaction in the first month. Um, so how does the Robocoin work? The Robocoin, you can both sell Bitcoins. So basically put in Bitcoins and get dollars or the other way around. So if you want to, so let's first say about if you want to buy Bitcoins, which is, I think, the more frequent case, you basically go to that um, Robocoin machine, you put in, you know, let's say $200 in cash, and then you already need to have a wallet software on your cell phone, and you would hold the QR code of, of your wallet, or I guess you could have a paper as well. And the Bitcoin ATM sends you the money or the Bitcoins onto that address. And with the Robocoin, you can also do the other thing. You can go there and you can say, I want to sell Bitcoins. So the, the Robocoin machine will show you an address in form of a QR code. 
you would send the money to that address. You get a, kind of a receipt from the Robocoin. And then once Robocoin has one confirmation, you can go back and basically get your cash. Uh, what's also interesting is that ATM is a bit misleading because ATM usually you have some account and you withdraw money from that account. But that's not what's happening here. Here what's really happening is that you're trading. You're trading similar to as if you were on Mt. Gox or some exchange. You know, you're either selling Bitcoins or buying Bitcoins. It's just that you're doing that on a physical location that's kind of like a gateway to an exchange. So the, so the term ATM uh, for automatic teller machine, which relates to you know an automatic bank teller, uh, is misleading because there, well, there's no bank and there's no teller and there never has been a teller. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it's not like you have an account that you're accessing through that machine. Right, it's right. that you're actively trading with, with that machine. Or basically that they're connecting you to, you know, a liquid Bitcoin market. Maybe ATM and is maybe maybe it's an automatic trading machine. <laughs> maybe ATM <laughs> is a good. I mean, I oh, was just exactly th- yes, yes. <laughs> I, I was thinking of different names. I mean, it could be a uh, I don't know what we could call these things, but uh, automatic vending machines or well, that's that's so that's the point, right? So you, you before mentioned that the second. Bitcoin ATM will be set up in Hong Kong. Well, the other company, I should mention, the Lamasu, they have a different machine. It's much smaller, it's uh, cheaper, it's more lightweight. And you can only sell Bitcoin. Uh, you can only uh, buy Bitcoins for, you know, dollar or euros there. You can't sell any. So that works basically the same way. You put in your money, you hold the QR code there. It sends you the Bitcoins onto that address and, and that's it. And they actually call it a Bitcoin vending machine. I think that also has to do with regulation and that they think this is somehow makes it less of a, you know, it, it might fall into a different regulatory category if it's like a vending machine, just like you have vending machines where you can buy like Mars bars or something like that. <laughs> I see, okay. Hmm. Yeah, but what I find interesting about um, the RoboCoin machine—it's—it's kind of—it's kind of funny that we're going back to this idea of using cash. I mean, it—it it just goes to show how entangled we are in the banking system and how difficult it is to deal with a banking system that takes several days to do a transaction. Is that we actually have to get back, go back to cash, like withdraw cash and put cash into this machine. In order to buy yeah. ATM, uh, in order to buy Bitcoin, where the automated, uh, computerized—I'm using air quotes here—way to do it, which in theory should be much quicker, <laughs> it, it actually takes much longer. It is much more difficult. It's, I just find that kind of ironic. No, totally. And then the other thing that's also very popular, you know, with Bitcoin is the person-to-person trading. We're actually meeting up someone, you give them cash, they send it to you. You know, it also has this very archaic uh, touch to it. You're right. But I mean, of course, the reason is very simple. It, it, the reason is that the banks are just, you know, not welcoming Bitcoin exchanges and they're making it very difficult. If it was easy... You know, if that didn't exist, of course you wouldn't need those ATMs, and it would all be a different situation. You know, to a large Bitcoin, to, to a large yeah. extent, it, it goes. It shows me that banks are broken, because if 
if uh, banks were able to make person-to-person transfers instantly, if, if, I mean, if basically banks were to implement the same sort of, I wouldn't say technology, but I mean the, the same user-facing features of Bitcoin, which is I can transfer money instantly uh, and that person receives the money, I can use it right, right away, uh, maybe Bitcoin wouldn't be so attractive or people wouldn't be turning to Bitcoin as an alternative. I mean, to me, this just goes to show how banks are broken and how they're um, very, I mean, how they're archaic in their, in the way they function and how they're based on an old system that has simply been adapted to new technologies, but not built from the ground up. Yeah. And what it also shows, I think, is just how restrictive the financial system is and how, um, how hostile it is against any new technology that just kind of goes against those entrenched procedures, you know. I mean, technically, it would be very easy for banks and for the financial system to make buying Bitcoins easy too. But of course, it, it's something new, it's something different. So they're very hostile against that. Um, but let's let's talk about these recent news, you know. So that's why I, when you said the second Bitcoin ATM, that's kind of misleading because there are some Lamasu machines also in operation. It will be the second uh, Robocoin machine and Robocoin, they call it ATM, whereas the other ones call it vending machine, although some of the people who operate Lamasus also call it ATM. Um, so let's, let's just mention a few others that have been in operation now. Um, I know there's been one set up in Finland a few weeks ago. That's also a Lamasu machine. One is operating in Sweden, also a Lamasu machine. Uh, then there is one in Slovakia that's been operating since early December. I think that might have been the first Lamasu machine, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, so there's at least three Lamasu machines currently in operation. And then I think sometimes they like put it up briefly somewhere, you know, they bring it to meet up at conference, uh, but they're not like permanent. And then there was also the story that in Brazil, there would be a Lamasu machine at a, a very large tech conference in two weeks. And I think they're going to look for a permanent location in Sao Paulo after that. So they're... Well, they're growing rapidly then. I mean, it seems to me like uh, we're going to be seeing more and more of these machines in 2014. And I mean, this is what we talked about in the uh, predictions episode. Um, we're yeah. well on the way to a few dozen machines uh, being uh, opened up all around the world. And I, I mean, I know because I've talked to all these people and, you know, so I know Lamasu and, and Lamasu has announced this recently. They've sold over 100 and uh, Robocoin, they've sold, I mean, I think they've sold close to 52, I think. I'm not, I don't you know the exact number, but they've sold quite a lot. So these are all being shipped in, you know, January and February. So, you know, the, both of these companies do like monthly batches, I think. So the issue has been... I think the, the main issue here is regulation. That's the main thing that slows it down. And that's the, the reason why even after receiving 
those machines many haven't been able to kind of take them in operation yet i mean i think a friend of mine bought one in san francisco and you know it's not clear if he can put it up or not so i think you know in the u.s for example we haven't seen one yet and of course the reason is regulation and right. yeah and we'll even even taiwan um like just after it was announced that hong kong would be getting a machine uh taiwan regulators blocked uh robocoin atms outright yeah that's right so i guess it's not going to happen there for the time being but you know, even though this regulation is bad and it is, makes it much more difficult, people find way arounds and, and, and there's the big differences between different countries. So in some countries, you can actually put them up and it works as, as we are seeing. I think in some places, they just go ahead without having permission. And I can imagine that some of these will be shut down again. But, you know, but that being said, I absolutely agree. I think we were going to see a lot of them and this is coming and it's coming quite rapidly. Yeah, my... Here's what I think about Bitcoin ATMs. I mean, the, the regulatory aspect obviously is going to be a challenge and you know, we'll need to get through those hurdles. Uh, but I think that Bitcoin ATMs, and I said this during the predictions episode, I think that they play a huge role in public perception of Bitcoin as they get installed around the world. So let me just explain to you what I mean by this. Is So put a Bitcoin ATM or whatever you want to call it on the street where people work and live, and, and th this gives Bitcoin a new visibility that it didn't have before. It puts Bitcoin, it, it brings Bitcoin closer to you as as a person or citizen or whatever. Uh, and it gives kind of, it gives the perception that Bitcoin is money. Uh, so it, to, to, to the regular person, it would give them the, the impression that oh this is this is money this is something that I can use to buy products or services and it's here in my city that must that must mean that I can use it to do other things than just buy drugs on the internet which is what, what most people that I that I talk to I think it's for um, obviously this can also be kind of detrimental because it um, further distances people from the notion that Bitcoin is a protocol and that it can be used for all sorts of other things but um, and even yeah. though even though the Bitcoin ATM is going to be obviously subject to the reg local regulations in terms of proving identity, I think that for most people it's going to facilitate the exchange of Bitcoins, um, especially for the layperson who's sort of reluctant to send his picture or his passport or utility bill over the internet. I think that the fact that there's a physical machine there will help people overcome this kind of fear of the unknown that Bitcoin exchanges, uh, that, that, that they see in Bitcoin exchanges. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and you just also have to look at the publicity. It's it's massive. I think the the Robocoin machine in Vancouver has been covered all over. You know, and it, you know, most newspapers. You know, a lot of newspapers in the world covered this one. It was you know tons of TV stations, and it probably had a. You know, I. I I would think it probably had a significant effect on this kind of price boom we saw too, just about around when it was released, because, you know, it, it makes it much more tangible and, and you're absolutely right. It takes it kind of away from this digital thing that's hard to grasp. And it's like, okay, I can actually take my money, put it in there and I have some Bitcoin, whatever that is, you know? So that, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think 
they will play a crucial role. If you have those all over the world, they will make Bitcoin much more real to people. And they will make it much harder to argue this is just some kind of weird tulip crave uh tulip craze bubble thing that's gonna pop and then we will never hear of, of it again. So I, I agree it's Bitcoin ATMs are a hugely positive thing and they're very important and I think they're gonna be they're gonna be uh, something we will see in many places in two thousand fourteen. Yeah, and let's be clear, I, I don't think that Bitcoin ATMs are, I want to say, the future of how people are going to trade Bitcoin outside of exchanges. I think that um, the next step and the next improvement would be that, uh, well, and again, it would, you know, the conditions of this would have to be in favor of uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem, but if, for, for instance, you can just buy Bitcoins from your bank where you can go on your online banking and say, okay, I want to buy uh, I want to buy so many Bitcoins and that gets converted into Bitcoins that you get on, on an address, much like an exchange, but without without having to transfer the money to the exchange, I think this would be great. Obviously, the conditions would have to be so, such that uh, it doesn't harm the Bitcoin ecosystem or that there, the fees are... are uh, reasonable uh, yeah and we really have things like that already i think you know there's coinbase which basically does that you can connect your bank account to a coinbase and then you can instantly buy uh, buy bitcoins and uh, in germany there's a bank called fedor bank and they are also working on connecting with bitcoin de i don't think they've done that yet but i think it will come shortly and it will basically enable something uh, similar and then maybe another thing that is a bit different but also goes towards making it really easy to buy bitcoins is is sipsap which i think is a remittance focused company but from what i understand they are working on making it possible for you to buy Bitcoin at, you know, a huge number of kind of corner stores and kiosks and you know, a lottery stands and things like that in, um, in the UK, you know, so if that exists, of course, your need for a Bitcoin ATM is lower, but the visibility thing is great. And um, of course, it's hard to see where Bitcoin ATMs will be in a few years. And I can, I can certainly see a case where they're just not necessary anymore. But I think in the next two, three years, they will be very important. Is there anything else you want to add um, concerning the Hong Kong story? No, I think let's, let's move to right. Zynga. Yeah, so uh, Zynga, the, the casual gaming company, they make Farmville, Cityville, Castleville, a bunch of a whole bunch of other games that you can play on Facebook and such. So they announced this week that they'll be conducting a Bitcoin test with BitPay, uh, one of the leading Bitcoin service providers. So the test is only available on Zynga.com, so the games that you play on the website. So that means, I guess that means you wouldn't be able to pay with Bitcoin for games that you play on Facebook, on your mobile, or what have you. So 
it, and the test is available on Farmville 2, Castleville, Sheffield, Coasterville, Hidden Chronicles, Hidden Shadows, and Cityville. So for anybody who plays any of these games, I certainly don't. <laughs> but for anybody who plays these games, you can purchase, uh, you can do in-game purchases uh, with Bitcoin. So what's interesting about this is that the announcement was made by the Zynga team on the Bitcoin subreddit on January 3rd. So I think that was Tuesday. Um, and it did cause quite a bit of discussion. If you go on, if you go on that post, there's like over 290 comments. And, uh, and actually somebody did a video on how showing how easy it is to pay with Bitcoin. It's quite simple. He just goes in, he's got the crypto, what is it called? Crypto um, kit. Crypt, crypto kit. Yeah. Uh, plug in on his, on his, uh, browser. He goes in, he pays, it, it takes literally like 20 seconds. So what I find, what I kind of found interesting about this is that Zynga chose to announce this on Reddit. They, like, I went and looked and I searched their blog, their investor page because they're a public company. So I looked on their investor page, their press release page. Like, there's n n nobody talks about this anywhere else on any official Zynga property. Uh, I didn't check Twitter, but it would surprise me if they spoke about it there. Um, so why? I guess the question is, why talk about it on, on Reddit uh, or, or only on Reddit rather than announce it uh, officially on your blog, at least on your blog? So I think that this is purely a PR move on the part of Zynga. I mean, sure, maybe they want to dabble in Bitcoin payments to see what they can learn. But just the fact that it wasn't even announced in any official manner on their, on their website um, shows me that there doesn't seem to be any long-term commitment. And maybe they just want to score points with the Bitcoin community. I mean, if you just look at if you just look at the games that it's being accepted on, I mean, they're casual games, you know, like Farmville, Sheffield. Like people who play these games are probably just casual gamers, most likely women in the twenty-five to forty-year-old market. I mean, not exactly the typical Bitcoin enthusiast. Um, but you can't blame Zynga for not having. Uh... <laughs> Users in the Bitcoin, the, the most typical Bitcoin demographic now. Right. Um, yeah. But I spoke to, I'm not, I'm not a gamer in any means, uh, much less a casual gamer that plays Zynga games, but I, I spoke to a friend of mine who works in the video game industry and kind of knows a lot about this kind of stuff. And what he pointed out was that um, he, he kind of agreed with me on the fact that this was a PR move and... Uh, and there's very little risk for Zynga or, uh, or in that users can't, the players can't exchange assets amongst themselves. Like in some games, I guess you can like trade stuff in, in Zynga games. This isn't the case. So like, I don't know if you buy berries, you can't like then sell berries to somebody else. So it's very little risk for them. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't quite share your views, I think. I think this is a positive thing, you know. It's just more companies accepting Bitcoin. and it's Or, you know, if they're testing it, perhaps it's not complete, etc. And, of course, if they do it through Facebook, then they have to have Facebook agree. And, you know, Facebook's going to be uh, conservative in that sense. So I think it makes sense to just have it on the website. Uh, you know, what you said that it's low risk. I mean, I think that's a good thing, you know. It's great how how much... You know how little risk it is for a company to accept Bitcoin. 
I, I certainly agree. It doesn't mean that much, right? All, all they do is to say, okay, instead of using your credit card, you can pay us with Bitcoin. It's, for them, it's not a risk, but it's, um, I think it's a, it's a great thing. It's a great positive thing. And it's just like, it's a, goes towards having more acceptance of Bitcoin as a payment system. And, and I also wouldn't downplay this in the sense that I think we should probably, uh, we'll talk about this briefly as well. But, you know, Overstock.com announced that, you know, they, it is live now. You can buy things with Bitcoin there. But after that, I think Zynga will, is probably the largest company now accepting Bitcoin payments. That, that's you know, true. I, that's true. But the, the statements made by Overstock.com, I mean, you, you can tell by the way that it was announced uh, and even by some of the statements of the CEO that they're really interested in this in this new currency, they're investing in it because they see a long-term um, uh, advantage in, it, in accepting it. I I don't think that Zynga has that same kind of uh, position. I mean, I, I think that this was most likely just uh, some board members or you know management team guys saying, okay, so let's uh, you know this Bitcoin thing, let's let's accept Bitcoin now and see what what happens. I, I don't think that they have a long term strategy or that they're committed to accepting Bitcoin because they see it as uh, as an yeah. But I'm just wondering, do you even need to be committed? You know, it's like companies accept American. You know, if you look at Bitcoin as a payment system, and you know, in this context for Zynga accepting Bitcoin payments, then that's all it is, right? It's all, it's really a payment system where people can, instead of using some other means to pay, they can pay with Bitcoin. So for them, like, do they need to have long-term commitment? I don't know. You know or do they need to feel, have these strong feelings and strong reasons to accept Bitcoin. It, it seems to me like, let's compare it to PayPal. You know, they probably don't feel very strongly about PayPal. They just accept PayPal because a lot of people use it. So I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I certainly, I certainly see your point that Overstock.com seems to be like, you know, or the CEO of that company seems to be like, you know, deeply passionate about Bitcoin. And I, I don't, I haven't seen anything or, of that sort with Zynga, but I don't think that's necessary, you know, I don't think we can expect that. In the end, people, companies will start accepting Bitcoin simply because it makes sense, you know, because it gives them some PR, because maybe it saves them a little bit of money on transaction costs, because enough people want to pay with Bitcoin. And, you know, I think that's just uh, another case of that. Yeah, no, maybe you're right. I just, it to me, it seemed like it was uh, they 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 didn't want to make too much noise about it because if they would have, they, they would have announced it. I mean, if this was sort of a okay, so we're going to do this, we're going to accept Bitcoin now because it's a viable payment option, uh, and you know we know that. I mean, we think that so many users are going to use it. They would have at least made a press release about it. Um, Whereas this is just yeah. being announced on Reddit to a very small community of people. I, mean, I, I would have preferred it just just for the the um, kind of awareness, um, and I guess all the all I mean media, the media, and I mean it, it took this story and then spoke about it. So I guess it was talked about, but if they really wanted to make some noise about it, they could have at least had a press release. Or a blog post. Yeah, sure. 
perhaps it will come, you know, we don't know. Maybe they'll roll it out more. And, mm. But yeah, we'll see. So there was just, there was an interesting thought about this in, in the Reddit, somebody in the, in the Reddit comments, somebody spoke about this and I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, so for, so let's say a company, a public company starts accepting Bitcoin and let's say for instance that they're, um, that they're, um, pr- primary payment processing system is PayPal, let's say, um, would it be interesting? What, do, you, do you think that the fact that moving to Bitcoin would reduce processing fees might have a, a positive outcome on their stock price? Well, I mean, the first question, I guess, is does it have a positive outcome on the profitability of the question, of the company? Uh, and that, of course, depends on how widely Bitcoin is used. But perhaps we can just use this to talk about briefly about Overstock.com because I think in that context, this is very interesting. So Overstock.com, uh, they announced, I think just around Christmas, that they would they are planning to start accepting Bitcoin and they said they would do that in mid-2014. So the CEO of the company is very interested in Bitcoin. He's kind of an outspoken libertarian and he likes Bitcoin for ideological reasons and also for other reasons. So uh, they've worked on that. And now instead of six months, it took them like three weeks to do it. And uh, Bitcoin payments are live there. And now Overstock is is also the biggest company that is accepting Bitcoin at this point. They have over a billion in revenue. So, you know, this is very big news for Bitcoin, I think. But let's look at the significance of of accepting Bitcoin for them as, you know, from an economic perspective for Overstock.com. Now, Overstock.com, they have a profit margin of 2%. Now, with, you know, let's say they pay 2% credit card processing fees, you know, that perhaps they pay a little bit less, but something like that. And now if they accept Bitcoin, you know, they can, they probably pay less than half a percent. So, you know, that they save at least a percent on the processing fees uh, with Bitcoin. And now that can make a big difference, of course. You know, if, if I mean, that increases their profit margin by 50% or maybe more, you know, on these Bitcoin sales. So that can make a massive difference. Now, I know in the first day, They've had something like $150,000 in in, uh, revenues from Bitcoin transactions. Now, how much? It was about 4% of their their total revenue. So, you know, this, this would, I mean, assuming that rate continues, which you probably won't, but even if they get 2% of their revenues or one or 2% this year in Bitcoin, it does make a noticeable impact. And if you have more, of course it can make, it can really make a difference. So I, I think if Bitcoin is starting to become more prevalent among consumers, then we will see a lot of companies starting to accept Bitcoin, especially companies where they had they have very low profit margin and where these credit card uh, processing fees make a huge difference. 
this is especially true for small transactions. And this is exactly the type of microtransaction that uh, Zynga uh, does. And our, our listeners in the U.S. and North America are not really used to this, but in in lots of countries in Europe, and particularly here in France, like you can't pay with your credit card, with your debit card in a store, in many stores, or many uh, like even if you're buying a sandwich or if you're buying something under five or six euros, like a lot of places will not even accept your your bank card if it's under five, ten, sometimes fifteen euros. Um, because the transactions are so high, or they don't want to pay them. So, like for example, if you're, if you're if you're buying like two packs of cigarettes, not that I smoke, but if you buy two packs of cigarettes, you can't pay with your bank card because that transactions that the transaction fees are too high. Like that's too that's too little profit for them, too little margin. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but there's two there's both sides here. I mean, you're certainly right that microtransactions is important, but even if you have big transactions, if you know, if you make it, overstock.com they sell like furniture and jewelry and all sorts of stuff so if you sell a sofa for let's say two thousand dollars and your uh, profit margin is a two percent right so that's forty dollars now if you pay one percent transaction fee on that or you know they probably pay. I don't know exactly how much they pay. They will probably pay a bit less than your corner store because they have special contracts with Visa, etc. Because they're so big. But let's say they pay thirty dollars of on transaction fees. You know that's that's a lot of money for them too. You think it's I really? I didn't think it would be. You think it's that high? Like thirty dollars for a two thousand dollar purchase? I mean that would be one point five percent, right? I know on average credit card companies charge around three percent. Right. And so I guess that, you're right. So we would be assuming that they pay half of that. I don't know exactly. Maybe maybe they have a slightly better deal even. I, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. But it wouldn't be surprising. Mm. And and a smaller merchant, let's let's think of a small furniture shop. Probably will pay three percent, so they would be paying sixty dollars on that sofa. Yeah, I know they're paying three percent because a lot of my clients are small e-commerce sites, like small businesses, uh, small medium-sized businesses, and um, I've had to deal with banks quite often to set up payments. And not only is there a a percentage fee, there's also a fixed flat rate fee, like thirty cents plus two or three percent. And obviously that goes down as um, transaction volume increases. But for a lot of these small merchants, they're, they're paying a lot of money in, in processing fees. Yeah, no. so, uh, yeah, I think this will also be an interesting area in 2014. We will see how much merchant adoption we will see. I've always been kind of of the view that we will see more on the side of investment and institutional investment and speculation, etc. But perhaps I'm wrong, and perhaps we will see Bitcoin as a payment system taking off this year as well. I mean, I think we will. The question is just to what extent, and whether the real breakthrough as a payment system will be 2014, or I think it's more likely going to be 2015. Or 2016, even. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting topic. Did you want to add anything? About, uh, I, I think I've said everything I 
I've got to say about this story. No, totally. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, coin generation. Have you created your own coin yet, Sebastian? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> but um, so this is kind of interesting. Uh, so there's a new service this week called that came out called CoinGen. So it's CoinGen.io, which allows anyone to create their own cryptocurrency quite easily. So CoinGen is created by um, a well-known uh, Bitcoin developer called, and his name is uh, Matt Corello, aka Blue Matt. And it's apparently received a flood of new users since launching. So here's how it works. So you go on CoinGen.io and you enter in like basic information about your coin. So the name, the abbreviated symbol, and an icon. And then you choose some of the technical aspects of your coin. So um, what proof of work algorithm do you want to use? Is it going to be SHA-256 or script? Uh, the block rates in seconds, the initial value per block, and the block halving rate. And that's it. Like, you created your altcoin. So it, it, he charges 0 0.01 Bitcoin just to generate it. So he makes a bit of money from this. I think 0 0.05, no? Uh, no, so it's... it's, it's 0 0.01 to generate, it's 0.1 to uh, remove the CoinGen branding from your coin. So I think this means like when you download the client, you won't get the CoinGen branding. And it's 0 0.05 to get the source, the source code. Okay. Right, so I, I didn't try it myself, but I downloaded um, a client from a coin that had already been generated. And it what, basically what I got is a, a Windows client and I got the source code for compiling the Linux client. So, cool. so you can go on CoinGen.io and you can create your coin there um, for pretty cheap. And there's a status page where you can see all of the coins that have been generated. And some of them are just ridiculous and most of them are. And in fact, I don't think most, most of them have any real use. Uh, there's, a, there's one called Adolf Hitler too. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus coin, I'm just seeing. Yeah, Jesus coin. That should take off real, real good. So, what the um, the creator Star uh, starving artist coin? <laughs> so, what he says is that the and this is kind of true that the the beauty of this is that it decreases the barrier of entry uh, for someone with with no technical expertise and that just has marketing expertise. So it 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 makes it really easy for for brands or just people to create uh, altcoins. Um, and what he says, and I'm not too sure what this means, but that transaction are being, transactions are being processed semi-manually. Uh, and there's a, currently a major backlog in the coins waiting to come into existence. So it may take a while for your coin to actually start working. So if you're, if you're looking, uh, if you're looking to make a, a real serious altcoin, uh, you might want to, go you know, do it through another route like actually coding. oh so yeah. so he doesn't also create the mining software and then you're going to start to do your own mining but there's like a set there's one mining that doesn't make sense to me though no i'm not i'm not sure really i mean i know you get a client but i think that the client gets created semi-manually or 
But I think you're going to have to set up nodes afterwards and mine that thing yourself right, and process right. transactions. So but yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. Yeah. So my thoughts on this is that I think it's, it's interesting because it gives the potential for creative brands to create their own cryptocurrencies. Like I see one use of this is where a brand could issue a cryptocurrency instead of uh, fidelity points or fidelity dollars redeemable for products or services. Um, and uh, there's, you know, there's also other innovative use cases for altcoins, which are the obvious, you know, using, using them to share properties uh, uh, such as shares or bonds or to do proof of existing work uh, to prove proof of existence work, such as like copyright. So I think that this kind of opens up uh, possibilities and maybe this is not the definitive uh, altcoin generator service, but I think that uh, we're going to see more and more of these altcoins come into existence and that will have uh, very specific uses. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible how many have been created on there. Like the demand seems to be insane. So yeah, I... Altcoins is definitely very interesting, you know, and I think we've just seen how easy it is to do that and it really doesn't take very much expertise. And now with this, it's literally anyone can do it. And then it's kind of fun, you know, I think people are having a lot of fun with it and doing like really interesting and original things. But that, you know, that being said, of course... In terms of real value, most of these coins don't have any of it. I think there's no doubt about that. No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of them, I think, are just created as a joke. <laughs> so this coin gen topic kind of brings us to the next story, which is uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, mo most people probably heard about it. So these guys decided to make an old coin, not on, co on coin gen, but these guys decided to make an old coin called Coinye, which is an obvious shot at Kanye West. So uh, like his picture was even on the coin. Well, it was called Coinye West first. Right. And, and so, then he, he threatened to sue them now. Right. So the, the, the coin was to be released over the weekend, but they received a cease and desist letter from Kanye's lawyers, which instructed them that they should stop the project because well, they were using his likeness. So they said that um, given Mr. West's wide-ranging entrepreneurial accomplishments, uh, consumers are likely to mis to be mistakenly believed that Kanye West uh, is a source of your services. So their response was like, "F this, we're launching the coin now," which was January seventh, and uh, we're gonna have a good laugh at it. So they changed the logo, the logo to, of the coin to a half man, half fish wearing sunglasses, which is an obvious South Park reference. For those of you who listen to South Park, uh, who watch South Park, you'll uh, you'll know what that means. And then they changed the domain name from a .com to a .in, which I'm not exactly sure what kind of legal safety that, that gives them. But And then they sent a letter back to Kanye West's lawyer saying that, um, well, obviously now we're not using Kanye West's image. We're using this uh, half-man, half-fish wearing sunglasses image. So there's no, there's no confusion that uh, we're not speaking of your client. And in fact, <laughs> now your client should stop using the 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 term coinye should never speak of coinye because now you're infringing on our uh, copyrighted work. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. I mean, I, I think 
more than anything else, it just shows that Kanye West obviously doesn't have uh, a very, I would say, a, a very developed sense of humor, whereas these guys do. Yeah. So I just wanted to talk about that briefly. Not that it's very important, but I just thought it was kind of funny. Okay, uh, let's let's briefly cover India again because uh, we've kind of mentioned it before. I think I've written about it in the newsletter. And uh, recently, just around Christmas, uh, in India, the regulators said Bitcoin is not regulated and the Bitcoin exchanges took this to mean that they can't operate. So they shut down. Two of them had their offices raided. And it really looked as if India was going to take a really prohibitive stance and kind of clamp down on Bitcoin hard. Uh, and then that somehow doesn't seem to be the case after all. Some some guy named Nishit Desai, who's a, supposedly one of the top taxation and legal experts in the country, said Bitcoin is a legitimate currency. And now the, the exchanges have been given the green light to go ahead and open again. So I think they've done that now. Uh, so it's it's interesting. It's just interesting how we've had this from prohibiting Bitcoin to being open about it again. And of course, I, I think the reason is that they just don't quite understand Bitcoin and that regulators have this challenge of having existing rules and they need to put take Bitcoin, put it in these existing rules, and it doesn't fit very well. So what do they do? You know, They either can say they don't apply, they can put it in some category that sort of fits, they can say don't do it at all, uh, and then they may do one thing and realize it doesn't work after all, and then they do another thing. And I think this is just an expression of that, and it's one of the things we've talked about in our predictions podcast as well. It's just this is, this is a topic we're going to come back to again and again, is that regulators struggling with Bitcoin, trying to make sense of it and putting it into existing categories and then failing at it and then, you know, trying it again and, you know, being very negative and then having a positive stance. I think we're going to see the other thing too. Regulators that are very kind of open towards Bitcoin and then they're going to clamp down on it. And so I think it's symptomatic of that, but of course it's good news because uh, Bitcoin has a tremendous potential and there's a huge remittance market and, uh, of course, a gigantic population. So this is, you know, this is great. I think it also goes to show that um, how governments and uh, central banks are, how, how influenced they are by well, experts. Uh, you know, at first, they seem to be uh, reluctant to accepting Bitcoin. And once this taxation and legal expert said something well okay well maybe we were wrong about it and yeah although of course we we have no idea whether this guy actually had an influence on the decision made and you know that was just a story in some media outlets but if if it's accurate or if it's you know we don't know so well let's let's cover Kind of our, our next big topic, I think it's our, it's our last big topic we have in, in this podcast, 
which is a topic that created a bit of a stir last week and we just kind of wanted to dive in and, and see exactly what this was about and whether all this worrying was really warranted. And that's the story of uh, a ghash.io, which is a mining pool. And during uh, the past few days or a few days ago, they reached a, a total share of the mining power of 42% at one point. And on Reddit, there was all these posts, you know, like, if, if you're on gash.io, you know, switch to another pool, you know, abandon this pool and, you know, try to prevent them to, from becoming so big. And at this point, it has... I'd never heard of gash.io before, this story. I haven't either. I think it's come up very recently. Uh, I'm not... I don't... So I don't exactly know how they were working but there are a few reasons i think why it became so big one is that it didn't charge any it doesn't charge still not it doesn't charge any uh, pool fees but perhaps let's first briefly talk about what mining pools are and why they're used so right now if you're a miner and you have your mining equipment you know, because it's so difficult to mine a Bitcoin, a block, it can take you a very long time to do that, or it might even not work at all, ever. So what do you do? Of course, you could take that risk and just mine and hope you get lucky, and then you would get the current mining reward, which is 25 Bitcoins and all the transaction fees, and that would be great for you. But more likely, you would be waiting a very long time so what, what miners do is they join pools. So basically they take all their mining power, they kind of pool it together, and then they get a regular rate of a blocks mined. You know, they might have a few a day or, you know, even dozens a day if, if it's a very big pool. And then they take the rewards they earn and they basically distribute among the miners according to how much they contributed to the mining power. So this, this is, is this is due to the fact that blocks are issued randomly. Um, when you're mining, you're issued a block randomly once every few minutes, and so if you're by yourself, you're less likely to be issued a block. But if you to be mined, but if you've got yeah. a lot of mining power, then yeah, there's so more chances that you can, you can be mining those blocks. That's right. I mean, there are some other minor things like efficiency advantages that uh, mining pools may have, but uh, the main reason is it's just that you can have regular payouts. You know, you can like every day you get some Bitcoin if you're part of a mining pool. Whereas if you're not, you can wait three months until you have your first payout. And if you're, let's say you have one of these USB miners, so a smaller device, then you probably will never see a payout. So I think the main advantage of mining pools is that they smooth out uh, the payout and you can have regular steady payouts, predictable payouts, instead of intermittent random large payouts and then large periods of nothing at all. So that that's mining. That's, that's what a mining pool does. And usually they charge a fee for that. But this ghash.io uh, didn't charge a fee for that. And they did also something else, which is that you could basically trade shares. You could kind of, I think, like trade your mining power to someone else. 
uh, through that pool because it was connected to um, basically a trading platform for mining shares. So I think that's also one of the reasons why this pool was very popular. So the, you had the 0% fees and, and then this possibility of, of uh, I think, selling your mining shares. So there were those two things that became very big. And that creates uh, some worries. And the one worry, or the primary worry, is something a lot of people have heard about, which is called this, a 51% attack. And uh, the basic idea is that when a mining, when someone has the majority of the mining power, they can do some things that you know they shouldn't be able to do with Bitcoin. For example, they could uh, spend Bitcoin and they could even wait for six confirmations. So, you know, let's say they would buy a car, they would uh, send the garage, whatever Bitcoins the car costs, let's say uh, 50 Bitcoins. And um, then the car dealership would wait for six confirmations. They would see, okay, it's there, they're given the car. And then this mining pool could basically go six blocks back and instead of sending this transaction to the car dealership, they send it to another address they own and they just mine on top of that. And if they have enough mining power, they can basically overtake the real blockchain and reverse that transaction. So that's one thing they can do. Uh, okay, so and this, they is, could this, this is really kind of technically complicated for even me to comprehend. But so they, they, go, they can go back... They could basically reverse transactions, uh, their own transactions, not someone else's transaction. Okay, right. But they could they could double spend money. They could um, refuse to process transactions, right? So, like, let's say you wanted to make a Bitcoin transaction. If someone has the the majority of mining power, they could just not not take it up in a block. Um, so okay. there are some things they could do that would be bad. Of course, by far the worst thing would be the degree to which something like that would undermine the trust in Bitcoin. It, because it's still limited. They couldn't you know, create coins out of nowhere or spend your coins or something like that. They couldn't do that. But of course, they would really, really shake the trust into the Bitcoin network, the Bitcoin protocol. So that's really, I think, the... The main negative thing, and so there has been worries because Gash.io is getting so big. It's like, well, perhaps they could try that if they wanted to. So, what's the what are the other components that need to be put in place for this to happen? I mean, can, can the people who own Gash.io basically do this um, with the mining power that's being generated by the miners, or do the miners also have to sort of um, be in on it? Does IO able to do this by themselves with the mining power that they have? Yes, the I think so. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think the miners would not have to uh, collaborate with this. But at the same time, a 51% attack would be noticed. You know, it, you can't, it will be noticed very quickly. And then, of course, miners could pull off their hardware and put it, point it somewhere else, and this wouldn't be possible. What's also important to realize is you don't actually need to have 51% attack. You can try this. Uh, with less. So with their 40%, uh, they could have still tried this and they they would have had a very good chance of actually pulling it off, like let's say 50% or something. 
And so the chances of them pulling it off are based on nobody noticing. Is, is that right? No, the chance of them pulling it off is uh, it depends on how much mining power they have. So if they have above 51%, you know, they basically, you know, they will be able to pull it off. If it's less, then they, there's a certain chance. But once they try it, in any case, it would be noticed. And then people would, of course, move their hardware away from this pool. And um, and then, you know, I think probably this pool would be rolled back. And in the end, it wouldn't be the end of Bitcoin, but it would be, a, you know, it would be quite a disaster. Are there any ways that we can... Are there any ways to prevent this from happening? I mean, if, even if a miner or a mining pool or a centralized mining... Uh, data center does gain more than 51%. Are there any ways that future versions of Bitcoin or new features of Bitcoin will be able to uh, prevent this from happening? Yeah, well, I don't think this is really Bitcoin's job to prevent this. So I, there's a few things to say here, right? The first thing is that for a miner executing such an attack, even if they're able to, is probably not in their interest. You know, because a large mining pool, they are in a good position. You know, they, for example, perhaps make a lot of money from uh, fees. And and if they did such an attack, you know, maybe they could double spend some money, but there is fairly limited amount of revenue they could get from something like that. But of course, what would happen, and I am absolutely certain of that, is the Bitcoin price would completely crash. I mean, I think we would, if if a miner actually or a mining pool executes such an attack, I mean, no, I think we would see, you could easily see Bitcoin prices below $100 or something. I mean, it would be a disaster. So who'd, who's harmed by that? Of course, a large mining pool is very much harmed by that. And their own position of power would be undermined by such an attack. So I think that's one positive thing is that miners or the people who are able to execute such an attack generally don't have an incentive to do so because it would actually destroy their own wealth and the source of their own wealth. Right, they don't. But somebody who compromises, somebody who wants uh, to to um, afflict harm on Bitcoin could um, perhaps you know, hack into their servers and perform that 51% attack. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. there's still a risk of you know, their servers being compromised and... And that attack taking place. Yeah, no, that's that's totally right, right? Or they could be coerced or something like that. So wh there's a few things that can be done. Of course, one is what what we've seen happen this week because uh, Chiasho.io is down to 32% uh, mining power, and and that's already much much less because the chance of being successful or something like that is 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 much lower. When you're at 32 percent, whether it's 42, it makes a massive difference. So one thing, of course, is that people say, "Well, you know, this is a problem. It's getting too big. We need to switch to another pool," which does happen. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing that people are working on, and I know that exists already, but it's not used very widely, is something called peer-to-peer -peer pool. There is one that's actually called P2P pool. Um, and it's a decentralized pool, so it will have the same kind of uh, distributing of mining returns. So you'll have to spooning out and you don't have to take these large risks with mining. 
but at the same time, there's no centralized control, so nobody would actually be able to do that. So that does exist. I think there are some issues in terms of usability, and I think from what I understand is that you need more resources. Maybe you need to run your own node to do it. So, um, so there, it's not it's not as popular, but people are definitely working on that. So you know, it's something people are aware of, and and they're trying to prevent this from happening. I think there's certain accountability on the mining pools also that they need to uh, make it clear that they're they're in no interest in having more than, say, 45% um, total mining power and that they won't accept new users or that they'll put... Oh, they do that. They do that? Yeah, yeah. Chihashodayo did that. I mean, they, they are... They're not accepting new independent miners. I know, I think, BTC Guild is a large pool and they actually in September, last September, they were at 45% of the total mining power. They've also done things like that, like uh, restricting, um, you know, new miners to join. Another thing they could do is they could increase um, the fees they charge. Chihashodayo didn't want to do that. I mean, they don't charge any fees, but let's say they started charging 2% fees, which I think is standard for mining pools, then that would also have an effect of decreasing. And, and they, they do that to some extent. I mean, and Chihashodayo uh, also did that. I mean, they didn't want to take over Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they have a certain responsibility. They feel they have a certain responsibility to protect the network, even though... Their company and do they make money? Uh, absolutely, because I mean, in the end, you know, if you just look at economic self-interest, they probably have they have more to lose by taking, you know, let's say getting to fifty-one percent mining power, even if they didn't do anything. You know, this would be something that would be very troubling to a lot of people, and it would kind of shake the trust in Bitcoin. It might. Mm-hmm. Make people move more to Litecoin and other other coins, you know. So they, they don't want that. Um, and I think there's a positive thing here that, in general, at this moment at least, the interest of mining pools and miners are kind of aligned with Bitcoin's long-term interest. But I just wanted to mention that briefly, and, and let's talk Bitcoin. The last episode. There's a very interesting interview with uh, Peter Todd, who's a um, kind of Bitcoin developer, and he's he's done a lot of work on the, you know, the protocol and the implications of it. And he, he talked a lot about the implication of centralized mining and especially what that means in the future. You know, because even if it's not a problem now, it's definitely something we have to be aware about and you have to think about, and because it could be a problem at some point. Because we don't, we don't quite know if that's going to be remain the same. Maybe at some point in the future, those rewards wouldn't be aligned anymore. Right, and there isn't only centralized um, mining in the forms of pools. I mean, like we talked about this in the last episode. There's also centralized mining in the form of cloud mining uh, data centers, like large very large data centers which have their own uh, centralized mining power. I mean, this is this is different from a mining pool in that a mining pool is um, 
brings together the mining power of s- several smaller miners. Uh, well, but they will still be part of a pool, probably. Or well, they will have their own pool. Perhaps, right, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, if you look at... If you go on blockchain.info, you can look at the distribution of mining power uh, according to pools, and, you know, that most of it is with pools, like with large pools. I think there are also some some software they provide and some some things they do to make mining slightly more efficient. So, but you, you're pointing out a good thing because there's, there's kind of two things there with these uh, cloud mining things. Often they actually allow you to choose what pool to point your hardware to. So you could basically have this company operating your mining hardware and then you could still choose which pool to operate in. You could probably even mine it independently if you wanted to. Um, But of course, they have physical control over your device. So in a sense, they could just do, you know, point it to their own pool or they could abuse it in some way if they wanted to. And then the other thing, the other kind of locus of control is with the mining pool operators who can... Who can at least as long as people don't notice, and at least as long as people kind of just point their mining power to that pool, they have a lot of power. Okay, I see. So, uh, so centralized mining and uh, and uh, too much mining power for one pool is um, something we want to be careful of. Yeah. You know, for this, nothing really bad happened because of the Shadio story. It was something we were, people were like, oh, we're worried about this. And I think this is important also to, you know, kind of keep perspective here because there's no reason to be too worried about mining at this point. And it's just something I think people think about, people are aware of, and we don't know how it will be in the future. Exactly, which is, I think, why we, we need to be careful and we need to keep a close eye on this. Yes, absolutely. And the outcry, absolutely just the outcry from this one particular story, I think, says a lot about um, the risks and how this can play out in the future. I think people are very uh, are going to be very careful to make sure that this doesn't happen, because it would it would be catastrophic to the fifty one percent attack, like you said, would be catastrophic to the uh, the price and to the ecosystem and just the trust that people have in Bitcoin and therefore the potential that Bitcoin has to do all these things that we wanted to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is one of the biggest dangers to Bitcoin, you know, much bigger than regulation or something. So because if something there goes wrong, uh, you know, you might actually see people abandoning Bitcoin for another cryptocurrency or something like that. I mean, I think that is possible. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. Uh, you know, whereas regulation, it can slow things down, it can make things more difficult, push it broad, etc., etc. It's a big problem right now, but I think as far as the long-term potential of Bitcoin go, I, I don't see it being such a, such a problem. So yeah, it is an important area to watch, and, and I'm sure we'll come back to this topic in the future when more things happen in this area. And I think that we'll, we'll see a lot of developments and hopefully P2P pool and similar efforts at making mining pools more decentralized will be successful and perhaps we won't have this problem.
There, there is one. Perhaps. Do you have anything else to to say about mining or this Chiasha Dio story? No, I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, I think you covered it pretty well. You know a lot more about it than I do. I don't, I don't know very much about it, but it's it's certainly an interesting interesting topic. I've been reading a bit about it. So, let's. Uh, there's one more story I want to briefly mention because I find it very interesting. I don't know if you heard about it as well. Did you hear about the Elliptic Vault? No, I haven't. So that's a, a UK company, and they're starting to offer insured Bitcoin storage. So as we've discussed numerous times, we've discussed in the predictions episode, and um, it's kind of a, a very important topic, is, is keeping Bitcoin safe is not easy. And uh, it's very easy to get your computer hacked into to, you know, lose your hard disk or God knows what. So Elliptic Vault now offers you that basically you can store your Bitcoins with them and they will have to cold storage and, you know, I'm sure do all kinds of things like key splitting and put it in bank safes and things like that. And the interesting thing is you can choose to basically get ins- or, or they provide insurance for that. So let's say you put uh, 10 Bitcoins with them. So 10 Bitcoins are worth, you know, like let's say $9,000 now. Now you could say I'm going to insure a certain amount of dollars per Bitcoin. So I could say I insure $900 per Bitcoin. Now, if they get robbed, uh, an insurance pays me back $900 per Bitcoin that they lost. And they did this with uh, Lloyd's of London, which is a, it's kind of like an insurance market. It's very old from like 300 years old. Um, so they're doing it with them. And it's it's cool. It's I think it's really cool. It's it's super super necessary to have a service like this because you know people having substantial amount of money. A lot of people getting into bitcoins don't really know how to uh, how to keep bitcoins safe. And and you know, this seems very safe to me. And they have you know re- very reputable kind of insurance behind it. So I, I think this is fantastic. Maybe one thing uh, that's not so great about it is that they charge a 2% annual premium. Yeah, I was which, just looking at that. Which I think is too expensive. I think that needs to come down. But as a basic offer, I think this is a tremendously valuable thing and it makes so much sense for that to be here. And I, I think a lot of people who, you know, let's say recognize the potential of Bitcoin... They want to invest in Bitcoin because they believe in Bitcoin, but they don't want to spend 20 hours learning about security, or maybe that's not necessary, but they don't want to really learn about security. They want to have that responsibility. You know, this is very interesting. They actually have a simulator here, which, so let's just talk about some of these features. So they have insurance, so your services. Our service is insured against loss and theft by a Lloyd's of London underwriter. They are stored in cold, kept in cold storage. Um, the private keys are kept it's, in multiple it's, locations. It's deep, it's deep cold storage. Deep cold storage. I don't, I don't know so. what the deep part refers to. But. 
that you can track your holdings through the blockchain. They have customer support, full reserve storage. So we do nothing. We do not do anything with your stored bitcoins. They're simply made in dormant storage. Uh, you can easily withdraw. And so this, um, let's just see here. So for example, let's say you have uh, 50 bitcoins. So you want to cover. I'm just trying to understand their simulator here. So it says, I have this many Bitcoins, so 50 Bitcoins. Give me this much to cover 50,000 pounds. Okay, so that would cover you up to a value of 1,000 pounds per Bitcoin at a current exchange rate. And that would cost you about 0 0.169 Bitcoins per month. So that would be what, like... Uh, it's two percent annually. So two percent, right? They charge. So, okay. On on the part you insured, of course. What's also important is if the Bitcoin price goes up, you might have to buy additional insurance for the price increase because your insurance is your insurance cover is uh, denominated in you know in dollars or pounds or something. This, this is interesting for like who who would this be interesting to like large businesses people who hold very very large number of bitcoins. Uh, yeah, this isn't think, for everybody. No, this isn't for everybody. I mean, I think they have a minimum cover of like five thousand pounds or something. So, I think this is interesting for people who are maybe not the most technically savvy, but who have relatively substantial amount of money to invest in Bitcoin and, you know, who want to do kind of long-term investment. This is, you know, this is certainly interesting. Would this be interesting for, say, a, a company or a, um, like who, who accepts Bitcoin as payment and accepts a large amount of Bitcoin or somebody who's investing in like a, a Bitcoin startup that has a lot of Bitcoin? I, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. I, I, I think the two percent then are are a bit much, and and also uh, most companies, you know, I think they need to kind of own that process. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't think it's it's. It really sounds like cold storage where it's there and you don't touch it because if a startup. Or a company that holds Bitcoin funds, like let's say Coinbase, they will still have to move it out of cold storage at times, and and I think they kind of need to be in control of that process. But perhaps so this is more, may, what you're saying maybe, is this is more for long-term storage of Bitcoin. So somebody who wants to I, invest in the long term and wants to make sure that that Bitcoin is secure and nobody's going to try to. Yeah, it sounds like what it's aimed for. But you know, perhaps, perhaps for you know. I don't know. I think if a, if a company is not able to, if a startup is not able to do this kind of cold storage themselves really professionally, they probably shouldn't be holding large amounts of Bitcoin for customers anyway. Can you just explain what cold storage is exactly for? Yeah, so cold storage, the idea is basically what controls a Bitcoin is the private key. You know, there's the public key and the private key. And if someone has your private key, he basically has your Bitcoins. And the idea of cold storage is that you take that private key and you move it offline and you move it to some device that's not controlled to the internet. So let's say I have a wallet on my desktop, uh, so on my computer, but I use that computer to 
also check my emails, etc. That's not cold storage because I might download some malware that takes over my computer and steals my bitcoins. But if I buy a new computer and I'm never connecting to the internet with that, and I could, for example, uh, create a Bitcoin wallet there and create a Bitcoin address there, and then I'm going to send my money to that Bitcoin address. But the private keys have only ever stayed on that computer that's never been connected to the internet. Well, that's see. cold storage. Okay. Or you could, uh, another thing is a paper wallet. I think people are familiar with that. It's basically you print out a public and private key. That, that public and private key shouldn't exist anymore on any internet connected device. And then you send the bitcoins to that address. So that's also cold storage. So, so the that's keys are generated on, a, on a, a device or a computer that has never been connected to the internet. And the, the funds are sent to the bitcoin address. Uh, to that bitcoin yeah, address. Right, okay. That's right. That's that's like the proper way to do cold storage. And, and that's what they're doing. Of course, that's not so trivial. Because let's say now you have this paper wallet and let's say you lose it. You know, there's still risks there. And then to do it really securely so that, one, it can't be stolen easily, but also it can't be lost easily or accidentally destroyed, you know, it's not easy. So, yeah, I, th I think it's good. You know, if, if someone, if you have someone who does that very professionally and, you know, they also have insurance, I think, you know, I think it's good. It's a very good offer. Uh, it's a very good service. I don't think the offer is so good with the 2%. A fee they charge, but it's a it's a good service. Well, that's really interesting, uh, and uh, you know maybe we'll, we'll see more companies get into this kind of Bitcoin insurance space. Uh, for I the, think so. At, at least for, for for the for the regular Bitcoin user, maybe who's got maybe a few thousand dollars in Bitcoin and and wants to secure secure those Bitcoins. Um, better than just having it on his computer or maybe not to the level where they do it, maybe not to the level where um, where they charge a, a monthly fee or a yearly fee, but um, maybe some, some more consumer-oriented services will, will appear within the next year. Yeah, I have no doubt that there's going to be more services like that, you know, and there you will also have hardware wallets. We also talked about that. So you can do some of the things they do yourself fairly easily without having to have a lot of expertise. So we'll see a lot of in, in this area. And I think, I'm sure their, their fees will come down too, because you just have to think about scale too. The more people use their service, you know, their costs don't go up that much and their costs, once, once they're set up and everything, the infrastructure is there, their costs are absolutely minimal. So I think it makes sense to, for these fees. They should be, you know, half a percent or, or something like that. And I think they will get there. And, and once it's there, of course, you know, if it's half a percent, well, you know, maybe, maybe you want to do that. Because, you know, getting your Bitcoin stolen is not so attractive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, you may want to talk about uh, local Bitcoins. Yes, Local Bitcoins is a really fantastic company. I've bought my first Bitcoin from uh, the founder of Local Bitcoins and I've used it extensively. 
And it's a it's a really great company. You can buy bitcoins uh, person to person. So you basically go on their site, you uh, type in where you live, and you see someone near you where you can buy bitcoins, who you can buy bitcoins from. Or you can do the same thing through bank transfer, and they have an escrow service for that. Uh, so it's really secure, and you know you're not getting robbed. So I, I highly recommend local bitcoins. You can use it virtually anywhere. You know they've. You can go to Nigeria, and well, you can use local bitcoins there. So it's really very resistant against all this regulation stuff. So it's it's a fantastic service they provide, and it's very valuable in kind of bringing bitcoins everywhere. And it's great to buy your first bitcoin too. So uh, if you're interested in that, then please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash local bitcoins and, uh, you know, you'll help the show and you can buy you your bitcoins or also sell your bitcoins that way. All right. So that's uh, all the topics that we have to cover for today. Um, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in for our second episode. We're really excited about this and uh, we're uh, looking forward to 2014 and and everything that we can bring you in terms of Bitcoin news through the podcast, through the through the blog, which is um, which we're working on right now, and also through the newsletter. Uh, so please go to epicenterbitcoin.com for that, and we'll be keeping you up to date on uh, on uh, all those developments. Also, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, uh, you can go to epicenter.com/newsletter, and uh, Brian sends that out every week. When do you send it out, Brian? On- uh, it was epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> no, epicenter.com. And I send it out every Friday. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, basically what's been going on in Bitcoin world, comments, kind of analysis of the main stories. And it's an easy way to stay up to date and know what's going on. Uh, and you can also send us a tip. Please send us a tip. <laughs> you can go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. And you can tip either the podcast or the newsletter there. Uh, we use a Coinbase widget, and you can just click on it and easily send us a tip. We've also got a Facebook and Twitter page that we've set up, and we're going to be posting uh, some content there more and more. Um, so it's uh, facebook.com slash epicenterbitcoin. You can just use the search. And our Twitter handle is twitter.com slash epicenterbtc. Epicenter BTC is our Twitter name. Yeah, thanks so much for listening in and uh, look forward to next week. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.